The kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning. It was present on earth in the person of Jesus. It currently is present on earth in the Christian. And it will be present on earth in all of its fullness when Jesus Christ returns. So you see, the kingdom of God is something that was and is and will be. And if you're just popping in for the first time and, and joining us as a, as a one-off event, special welcome to you. We're, we're just getting started in learning together about what the kingdom of God is like. And the Gospel of Luke um, is our material, is our content. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're at the very beginning looking for an answer to this question, what is the kingdom of God like? This kingdom that Jesus came preaching And we've taken a Trinitarian approach to chapters 1 and 2, just on the lookout in chapters 1 and 2 for the unique contribution to the kingdom by each member of the Trinity. So what's the Father up to in the kingdom? What is the Son, what is His unique role? And what about the Holy Spirit? And we talked about how the Holy Spirit is the power in this kingdom. And we noted last week, that the Father is the planner of this kingdom. So that's the Father and the Holy Spirit. What about the Son? What is his role? What is the role of the Son, God the Son, God the second person in the kingdom of God? That's what we're trying to answer today. We'll answer it in three parts, looking at how Luke presents the Son to us in the first two chapters of his gospel. So, we're going to cover a few different parts of the, um, of the text, but we're only going to read verses 1 through 7, okay, of chapter 2. The familiar passage, the Christmas passage, Luke 2, 1 through 7. If you're able to stand this morning in honor of God and his word, let's stand for the reading. Then we'll ask God to invest power in helping us to understand and apply through prayer, and then we'll, we'll get going, okay? Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, this is, uh, this is an incredible thing to read. Um, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts in the next few minutes just, just how incredible it is, what it means about your son, what it means about you, and that we would be changed as a result of what we find here. 
as we turn our minds to you. I pray that you would uh, thrill us. I pray that you would satisfy us with the knowledge of who you are and give us great joy in your presence as we give attention to these things. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're going to spend most of our time on the third point. The idea that the sun will be opposed. But let's not miss these two other things on, on the way there. First of all, that God the Son, thinking about his unique role in this kingdom, God the Son, God the second person, is the one who is born. Of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son is the one who is born. That is, of course, a very simple thing. It's something that we've all experienced, a birth. But for God to be born, God the second person, it is a profound thing. Our first point is just that the unique role of the Son in this kingdom of God is that he is the one who is Born, or in the language of John chapter 1, he's the one that became flesh. So, in this first point, I think we really have two concerns as we think about the reality that God the Son was born. I think we have two concerns. Our first concern is to maintain a proper understanding of the eternality of God the Son. We want to remember that just because he was born does not mean that God the Son had a beginning. It doesn't mean that God the Father existed before God the Son and that then the Son was born. No. God, all three persons, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have always existed. They are co-eternal. Remember that in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. To put it in the language of the church fathers, there was never a time when God the Son was not. He has always been. It's just that there was a time when he took on flesh and was born and was named. And he was named Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? I just want to remember to maintain our understanding of the eternality of God the Son and not think that he began his existence when he took on flesh. Our second concern here, thinking about God the second person being born, is to understand the necessity of God the second person being born to understand that it was a necessary thing for us. Why was it necessary for God to become a man? Very simply put, it was necessary for God, God the second person, to take on flesh and become man in order to be an acceptable substitute for us on the cross. 
in order to die in the place of man for the sins of man, it was necessary for our representative to actually be a man. Since it was mankind that sinned. Were all of the animals who have ever existed to be sacrificed to God, they could never cover the sin debt of man against God. A man had to be sacrificed. That's just. And to take it even one step further, not only did it have to be a man, it had to be a perfect man, a man with no sin. Because only an unblemished sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord. Well, have you looked around lately? We don't have any of those. We don't have any of those walking around. An unblemished man, an unblemished human, a sinless human. We don't have any of those. We can't buy one of those. We can't find one of those. We can only be given one of those from above. Such a person has to be divine to have no sin. Talked about that a little bit on Christmas Eve. That's who we needed as our substitute. Someone fully man and fully God. That's who we needed. And that's who Jesus is. And that's why he could and did bear our sins in his death. It was necessary for us, for God, to be born, become human in order to redeem mankind. So we just note first that God the Son was born. We're looking at his unique role in this kingdom Secondly, regarding his unique role in this kingdom, he will reign. That's what we find in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 in the angel announcement to Mary. As we study the Gospel of Luke, as you know, as we keep saying, we're, we're focusing on this idea of the kingdom of God. And every kingdom needs a king. Well, here he is. This is the one. This is The king, the king of this kingdom, it is Jesus, this boy born to Mary. And he is born with the right to reign. All right, now, just as we had two concerns in the first point, we have two concerns in this second point. The first thing we want to understand is that he has a right to reign from a human perspective. Now, what gives someone in Israel the right to reign from a human perspective? Well, they have to be in the line of David, don't they? And that's what we find in verses 32 and 33. He will be great, be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. There it is. He's in the line of David. David's his father. We see the same idea repeated when we get into chapter 2. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, chapter 2, verse 4. He was in the house and the lineage of David. Luke is going to take a little more time to trace Jesus' ancestry um, once we get to chapter 3. latter half of chapter 3 is his genealogy, where he traces Jesus' line back through David, well, through Joseph, and then through David, all the way back to Adam. 
So we, we see this and we say, okay, Jesus has the right to reign from a human perspective because his father Joseph is, is in the line of David. But more than that, he has the right to reign from a divine perspective. If you've got a, a copy of the scriptures open in front of you, look very carefully at chapter 1, verse 33 the angel announcement to Mary. The announcement is that her son will be a king, but not just any king. So he's not just going to be another guy in the line of David. He's not going to be just another one of those guys in the line of David that reigns for 15, 20, 25, 30 years, and then he's done, and then the next person comes along. That's how all the other kings were in the line of David. But that's not what we read here. No, we read in verse 33, latter part of verse 33, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Let me ask you a question. When did the kingdom become, when did the kingdom start belonging to someone other than David? What we should expect to read here is that this continuing kingdom of David will have no end. That's not what it says. Of his kingdom. It's his. When did it stop belonging to David? Well, when Jesus came, that's when. This kingdom belongs to him, and it always will. It's an everlasting kingdom. Kingdom. And this is something that was foretold in the Old Testament. So if you're someone that likes to take notes and write notes in the margin of your Bible, next to Luke 1, 32 and 33, jot down these three references. Daniel 7, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110. All of those Old Testament passages speak to this coming son who has the right to an eternal rule by the pleasure of the Father. And he won't just be a human. He can't be just a human. Because David calls him my Lord. Psalm 110 Really, really hard to understand. Really mysterious. David writing in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's David writing, and he says, The Lord, that's God, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, how can that be? Who's higher than David? Who in the world could David call my Lord? That's the very question that Jesus forces the religious leaders to wrestle with when he's speaking with them. We get to Luke chapter 20. We'll read about that. He brings that very question to them and says, wrestle with this. If David called the Christ my Lord, then who must the Christ be? No one can be David's Lord except God himself. There's nobody higher than David except God. This person must be divine. It's the only legitimate answer. 
He's got the right to rule from a human perspective. Jesus has the right to rule from a divine perspective. He's being given a kingdom that is his kingdom, and it will never end as foretold by the prophets. Okay, we've made our way through the first two points, thinking about the unique role of the son in this kingdom. He is born. He will reign. And the last thing that we find is something that we pick, on, pick up on in um, the middle part of chapter 2 when Simeon is speaking. Just because he's born and just because he's born to reign, we learn that that doesn't mean that his path to the throne is going to be a smooth one. It's not just going to be handed to him. His reign is not going to be uncontested. We find out that he will be opposed. Luke 2.34, this is after Simeon um, praises God that the Gentiles are going to be included. He's got this uh, more sobering comment to make to the parents. And Simeon, this is Luke 2.34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Next Sunday, we're going to circle back to this idea that um, Mary's soul also will be pierced. And what does that mean? What could that mean? We'll talk about that next Sunday. Today, we're just paying particular attention to this idea that Jesus is a sign to be opposed. The word that's translated opposed here actually has a whole range of meaning. Opposed is actually toward the softer end. It can also mean refused and rejected. So not only opposed, but refused and outright rejected. And we know the story. We know what's going to happen as Jesus progresses through his life. We know what's coming for him. We know what form the opposition and rejection will take, that Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, will suffer at the hands of those who oppose and reject him. This king will suffer. It is biblical language. It's biblically faithful to talk about the idea of Jesus um, suffering. Isaiah writes about, about the suffering of the Messiah, especially in chapter 53. The writer to the Hebrews talks about the suffering of Jesus, chapter 2. Jesus himself uses that very word, that very idea, talking about his own experience, Mark 9. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? So right from the beginning here in the first chapters of Luke, we're introduced to the idea that Jesus will be opposed, refused, rejected, that he will suffer many things. Now, take mentally, just take a step back for a moment. 
consider what this means about God. That God, the second person, takes a body and suffers. It means that by his own free choice, God has chosen to participate in suffering. And not only that, but God has freely chosen to participate in the hardest suffering known to mankind. We think, of course, right away about the intense physical suffering of Jesus experienced by the Son. We think about the flogging and the crucifixion. There's another aspect about the suffering that God freely chose. There's something else that we could consider about God as we think about what it would have meant for the Father to watch this happen to his beloved Son. I do think we have to be really careful when we talk about the emotional life of God. When we start talking about the feelings of God and the emotions that God experiences, I think we do have to be careful that we just don't take our experience and import it onto him and say that this is exactly how God felt in the same degree that we feel these things. So I think it is something that we have to be careful with as we think through these things. But we do have the testimony of the Scriptures that God loves and that God hates, and that God feels compassion, and that God feels anger, and even much more mysterious things like Genesis 6, where we read that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. So I think that we have to tread carefully and not assume that we know exactly what God felt and what God feels since he's completely other than us. But even so, having this biblical witness of a God that experiences love and hate and anger and compassion and sorrow, I have to believe that witnessing the suffering of his son, his beloved son, was the hardest experience that any being, divine or human, has ever known. I can't imagine it. Make me do anything other than looking upon that treatment of one of my children, and I'll do it. God himself has entered that space of suffering. And some humans, some human parents will know a parallel experience of watching a child suffer. You know, we often go to Genesis 22 and we Think about Abraham's potential sacrifice of his son. 
his son Isaac. We read Genesis 22 and we think about how, do, how God ended up not requiring that of Abraham. He did not require Abraham to sacrifice his son, but how he did in the end require it of himself. God did require of himself that his son be sacrificed on the cross. That's Genesis 22, that God did not require the man to do what he required of himself. Much less often, maybe never, do we go to the chapter right before that, chapter 21, where Hagar, the servant of Sarah, is sent away out of Abraham's house with her small son, Ishmael. Remember, Abraham sends out the servant woman with her small son, and they wander in the desert, and they have no water. And do you remember what she does with the boy and why she does it? There's no water, so Hagar puts her son down under a bush and went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. So look at the distance that she's putting between herself and her son who's going to die. She puts her son down under a bush so she can't see it, and she went and she sat down opposite him a good way off. How far? About the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it happen. And God intercedes and he saves them both. And what God did not require of Hagar, looking on the death of her son, something too horrible to imagine, something soul-rending, watching her son die, what he did not require of her, God did require of himself. God required himself to look upon the death of the son that he loved. God freely chose to experience these kinds of suffering. And both are unimaginable. There's no calculus for figuring out how much suffering that is. It's just deep, deep suffering. And the God, the God who is there, freely chose to experience it. I think one of the most understandable charges that could be leveled at me as someone who preaches the Bible is um, for someone to say, sure, it's really easy for you to preach a good God. It's really easy for you to say that God is good because you do not know what it feels like to suffer. You've not lost a child. You've not experienced an, an unthinkable violation of your body. You really don't know what it feels like to suffer. Why don't you come back after you've suffered and then tell us that God is good? And then tell me that God is good. We'll see what kind of a God you're preaching then after you've suffered a little bit. I think that kind of charge is very, very understandable. And I really have nothing to say to that. And I have no desire to try to even make a counter-argument against that or to say anything in defense of myself except for this. You're right. My life has been really easy by almost any standard that you use.
I really don't know what it feels like to suffer. But the God of the Bible knows. The God of the Bible knows by experience what it feels like to suffer. He has not remained aloof. He has not remained detached from suffering. Your fellowship is with him, not me. He knows. The God of the Bible knows. What kind of a God, by his own free choice, would choose to take a body and come and suffer? The God that's presented to us in the Bible. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This kingdom of God that we're learning about is no fake kingdom. It's not a flaky kingdom. It's a kingdom that we come to not in spite of our suffering, but because we are suffering. For Jesus has said to you, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's the message of his kingdom. And he who says that to you, you who are suffering, has himself suffered and is able to comfort you in your suffering. The Son, God the second person, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. Amen. Father, I I pray for your, your deepest comforts for your people. in this this world still so tainted with sin and almost completely overcome by sin, the sin of mankind, our sins, my sins, that I contribute to daily and hourly. Thank you for cheering our hearts with good news of great joy that there is a light and his name is Jesus, that he's coming again and that his kingdom will have no end that there will be a day when there are no more tears and there are no more, no more feelings of suffering. We confess it's our only hope. We love you. Amen.